As you can see, we are, I'm not alone up here this morning. Uh, some of my favorite Sundays are elder panels. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, great. it's a great opportunity uh, for you guys to, to not just hear me, but to hear all of our shepherds handle God's word. That is critically important here at Oak Hill. It should be important at every church that elders are actively teaching. So we've, we consider it a privilege that these guys are up here uh, this morning. Now, we paused our series in the Gospel of John. Remember October 11th? I mean, it seems like a, a, a life, a different life, right? Uh, coming up on three months ago. Uh, and so since then, we have done, and by the way, thank you for your grace. Um, uh, just over the last couple of weeks, giving me a couple of weeks off in the pulpit has been amazing. Uh, I get to focus on my family. Uh, I am recharged and excited about 2022. Really excited about what's coming up the next two Sundays before we get back into John. The next two Sundays have some really important, practical uh, uh, messages to bring related to our life, living life together here at Oak Hill. So very excited about that. Don't miss those. Uh, but we have done a couple of series since we paused the Gospel of John. And so I thought I would just remind you where we've been before these guys get up. Uh, we did a Reformation series, remember, in October, focusing called, uh, called the one over here, Mystery and Mercy. And we talked about the historical and the theological foundation for the doctrine of communion. And I hope you guys learned a lot in that. Uh, it was really, really helpful for me to process through that over those four weeks to teach on it and for us to understand so that we can, as a body, come to a place where we say, this is what we believe about communion, because it can be very complex and very difficult. Then we did, I did sort of a one-off Sunday, a Thanksgiving epistle that I wrote to the church family here. And then finally, just recently, we did a four-part series called Hope of the Ages, where we studied the hope of the gospel in four different dispensations, remember? Going back to the garden, Genesis 3.15, and the fall, we talked about that. Then we talked about the hope of the gospel under the old covenant and the promises of Messiah. Then we talked about the coming of, of Christ in the new, uh, under the new covenant. And then we talked about the future reign of the king, right, that's coming soon. Amen? Amen. Good. So what we wanted to do, so the guys a, a while ago said, January 2nd, let's do an elder panel. And we talked about, well, what do we want to talk about? And the guys said, you know what? These, these couple, last couple series have been so helpful and so valuable. Why don't we sort of share with the church family what impacted us? And what did they learn? What did these guys learn? How did those, those, those topics uh, impact their lives and what jumped off the page for them? So this is a good chance this morning for, to reinforce some of the things we've been teaching over the last three months almost, and so I want to make sure we give these guys our attention. They're going to come up one at a time, and each one of them, I, I gave them free reign. I said, whatever the Lord puts on your heart from the last couple series, I want you to come up, and I want you to teach the folks. So uh, I'm excited to hear what the Lord's been working on. So we're going to start with Kenny this morning, uh, and Kenny wanted to go back to the Mystery and Mercy series, and so the question that he's going to talk about, the issue he's going to talk about, is the thing that impacted him the most in that series, and that was our spiritual union with Christ. You ready? ready. Let's do it. <clears throat> yeah, I am, I'm thankful for my brother Jeff to take time and really preach through mystery and mercy. And as he explained it, it was how the biblical reformers considered communion, and really how does that affect us today? Reflecting back on church history is a very useful tool on how people are to see how people have processed things in the past and how that really does affect us today. 
For us at Oak Hill, we as an elder team wanted to bring your attention to the Lord's table. It's something that we do every single month, so it's always good to look through why we do what we do. Not just the process of it, but the spiritual side of it, or the mystery and the mercy we are shown through what Christ has done for us. As Jeff said in the series, every ministry of the Word and Sacrament in the life of Oak Hill Bible Church should be a time of wonder. The spiritual provisions from God we don't quite understand should cause us to have awe and wonder as we are living out what God has called us to and to praise God for his provisions. During that sermon series, the most impactful truth for me is our spiritual union we have with Christ and ultimately how that relates back to communion. So it's a good reminder that we are human beings created in God's image and we are created physical and spiritual, the outer and the inner man. To live in fellowship and communion with God, to trust in his provisions, and to obey his commandments. But with the introduction of sin since the garden, it has destroyed this communion by rendering humanity both guilty and corrupt, separating us from God and causing us to be deserving of death. So in response, God, as Jesus Christ our Savior, has made a way to restore that communion by his death and resurrection as a way of paying our debt and unifying us with Christ, ultimately bringing us ultimately to bring glory to God the Father. So a couple passages that Jeff touched on that I want to share with you that were impactful for me. Uh, first one, so there's, there's a couple great passages. So this is going to come from both Paul's writing and the epistles. So Paul writing to the church in Rome, explaining uh, believers' position with Christ, says this in Romans 6, 3 through 6. Or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by the baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin." And Paul echoes that same idea in Galatians 2.20, which says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So at the point of salvation, we are united with Christ. We are baptized into his death. We are raised in newness of life, and the life we now live is Christ in me. So when you talk about mystery, you talk about wonder, for a believer, look no further than the point of salvation or the point at which someone gets saved. It's a great mystery of why God chose his elect. Why did he choose us? When you stop and think about what goes on at the point of salvation, it, it should cause you to be in wonder at his great work. There are a few things that happen at the point of salvation. We're united with Christ. He has paid the price of our sin that we have committed against God. We have been reconciled with God. Christ also gives us a new life, one freed from the bondage of sin. We don't have to sin anymore. We are counted as righteous because the Father sees Christ in us. We are now children of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. Christ dwells in us through the Holy Spirit as a helper. And we have a future promise of glorification. So I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, that if you are feeling discouraged going into the new year, or if you just want to be more encouraged... Stop and make a list of all that God has done for you. And even if that list is just the same list that I just shared with you, may you be encouraged to see how God has provided so much for you this last year. Even if last year was crazy for you, he has still provided so much. And to give you 
the hope that we also have in the future promises to come. So how does that all relate back to communion? How does that um, impact our understanding of communion? So we understand that our lives are both physical and spiritual. We, we have the outer man and the inner man. And to our detriment, we can have a lackadaisical approach to how we take communion. It's just another service. We're just eating some bread and drinking some juice. We bring it down to something that is purely physical. And we don't stop and think about the spiritual side of it. Because we are united with Christ, communion with God, fellowship or sharing with him is not only physical, but it's also spiritual. The way that we receive Christ in the elements is by the Holy Spirit uniting us to Christ in heaven by faith. Christ does not come down to physically become bread and wine, but rather our soul is drawn heavenward in union with Christ by the Holy Spirit. So one misconception that, that we take the approach that communion is us bringing our best to God, our sacrifice to God, that if we had a bad week, we shouldn't take communion, let's let, the, let's let it pass. But do you forget that God is also quick to forgive? Do you forget that it is not by your works that we are saved, but it is grace through faith that we are saved? And that's one of the reasons that why we have a separate time from our church to our members' communion service is for you to take time to examine your hearts for unrepentant sin and to take it to the Lord. Or if there's disunity in the body that you are a part of, reconcile with that person. So we should not take communion as a works righteousness sort of thing, but we should see it as a gift from God to his children. That we take time to fellowship with God, time to remember what he has done for us by shedding his blood and his body for our good. In that time, God reinforces all his promises to us. It is a time that we can be strengthened in faith together as members of a local church. So it's purely by our unity with Christ that man can be in communion with God once again and allowing us to partake in the Eucharist. So if you guys want to learn more about what the Reformers thought of communion, if you want to learn more about the different positions uh, and ultimately what our view of communion is at Oak Hill, I would encourage you, go back and listen to the series. For, for many of you, it was very helpful. Even brothers in other countries have listened to it and said, wow, we've, we've reshaped what we thought about communion because of that series. So it was great. So if you didn't listen to it all, I'd encourage you to go back. Or if you want to be re-encouraged, listen to it again. Yeah. Amen. Thank you for that, Kenny. brought all that back. And, and this the beauty of the spiritual union that we have with Christ. We do take that for granted. But this, this already not yet concept that we have, that all those promises... The, the union that we have with Christ is so uh, unbreakable that we have all of those things now, and those promises are so secure. We have them right now, and yet there's more to be fulfilled when we come into the fullness of it. So we only have more to look forward to, but that is really the key of communion is that spiritual union that we have with Christ, that we are spiritually feeding on Him in the elements. So thanks for that, Kenny. Awesome stuff. All right, Dave wanted to talk about our, the Thanksgiving epistle uh, that we that we covered, and to talk about thankfulness in general. So, Dave, come on up. Need my mic. Okay, thanks, Jeff. Um, so, uh, the the letter that you wrote um, covered a lot of uh, ground and a variety of topics, uh, but I want to thank you for writing it, for putting it together. Uh, we were all blessed by it very much. Um, but I, I want to provide a, a brief recap of that letter uh, before I get too much into Thanksgiving. Jeff looked at where we're at in the, in the life of Oak Hill, looking at its past, its present, and its future, 
and gave thanks to God for his care through the years, but especially during the past few months of the pandemic. Jeff affirmed the importance of the gospel and our identity in Christ and gave thanks to God for our salvation. Jeff also talked about the challenges that we faced as a church body during COVID and thanked the congregation for responding with hearts of love and service toward each other. In fact, he said that he constantly thanked God for the Oak Hill body and even specifically thanked a long list of people for their hearts of service, love, and encouragement. And But throughout the whole letter, many times Jeff expressed thankfulness to God for all of these things. So this morning, I wanted to reflect back on the, on the practice of thanks, thanks, thankfulness because it's easy to celebrate it once a year on Thanksgiving Day, but then really not focus on it throughout the year. Here's what John Piper says about thankfulness. How thankful we are reveals the health of our souls. It's what we experience when we perceive that what we have received is an undeserved gift of grace. Gratitude is a fruit of humility. It's inherently unselfish. We don't feel true gratitude toward ourselves, but only towards someone else who treats us better than we deserve. When the Apostle Paul describes what our being filled with the Spirit looks like, he points to thankfulness. Piper goes on to quote Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying that in being spirit-filled, we are always giving thanks in everything. Always means at all times, both during times of, of, of good and times of hardship, and in everything means in every situation. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So putting this all together, we are to give thanks always, in everything, and in every circumstance. That's very comprehensive. And those things are a product of being spirit-filled. If you have a Bible, turn, it, turn in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 100. Psalm 100. We find the theme of thankfulness throughout the Bible, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And as, a, and as an aside, there are 16 psalms that are dedicated to thankfulness. Psalm 100, we're going to start in verse 4. Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. When we approach God, we are to do so with thanksgiving and praise. And we see that throughout the Bible, each time thankfulness is expressed, there's a reason for it. And at the root of that reason is the gospel. The gospel is the gateway to understanding thankfulness. So in Psalm 100, verses 3 and 5, tell us the reasons for thankfulness. So let's backtrack a little bit to verse 3. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pastor. Pastor. And then skipping to verse 5, For the Lord is good, and his loving devotion endures forever. His faithfulness continues to all generations. These are great verses to meditate on. 
They are so rich in reasons to give thanks to God. These verses tell us that we can thank him because there is a God who created us and we belong to him, that he is good, that we know him and are known by him, that he loves us and we are the people of his pasture. So he is our shepherd who cares for us and in fact he loves us and that he is forever faithful. Many reasons here to be thankful. So when we go to the Lord in prayer and thank him, there should be a reason for our thanks. Otherwise, our thanks could just be empty words. So if thankfulness is so important, how do we cultivate a heart of thankfulness year-round, not just on Thanksgiving Day? I'd like to give you three ways. One, Piper said we need to be humble and not prideful. So humility is needed. Two, and as I said before, the gospel sets forth the foundation for all of our thankfulness. It informs us that everything that we have comes from the hand of God and that we are undeserving of anything that he has given us. And when we reflect on how undeserving we are, we see that God in his grace has overwhelmingly treated us better than we deserve. And so we are thankful for his undeserved gifts of grace. And since we are always to be thankful, we shouldn't ever complain or have a heart that believes it's, it, it's, it's entitled or get upset when we don't get what we want or things don't go on our way. Instead, we're to be grateful and thankful people always in everything and in every circumstance because we don't deserve anything that we've received. The third way to cultivate a thankful heart is found in Colossians 4.2. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So we are to be thankful in our prayers. I'd like to suggest that thankfulness be included in your daily prayer list so it doesn't slip through the cracks. Giving thanks enables us to worship God rightly. We glorify God when we give thanks. There can't be praise and worship with an ungrateful or complaining heart. In Colossians 3, the great chapter of taking off sin and putting on godliness, Paul considers thanksgiving so important that he uses the word thankful three times in verses 15 through 18 in describing things that we are to put on. We are to put on thankfulness as a replacement for sins like complaining and pride. Because when we're thankful, we're not complaining. When we're thankful, we're not prideful. And we're not selfishly seeking something for ourselves. When we're complaining or ungrateful, the best thing that we can do is confess it, acknowledge it as sin, and then repent by putting on thankfulness. So if you're asking yourselves, what do I have to be thankful for? I'd like to end with a list of just a few of the many things that we can be thankful for. Here we go. We should be thankful for common graces, such as the planet that we live in, the sun that warms us, rain, the air that we breathe, the food that we have to eat because we acknowledge that they are all from the hand of God. We should be thankful because we have victory over sin and death through Christ and because we have been set free from the power of sin and are now slaves to righteousness. Romans 6.23 says, The penalty of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So we are thankful that though we deserved death and hell, through grace, God gifted us with eternal life and so much more. We're thankful for all the things that we don't deserve. And if we think that we deserve anything that God has given us, then we won't truly be thankful. We're thankful for not that not only God forgave us our sins 
and he gave us eternal life, but he has given us a great inheritance in Christ. He has adopted us as his sons and daughters. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and he has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. We can be thankful that Jesus leads us daily. We're thankful during communion, and we're thankful for the hope of the resurrection. We can be thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, thankful for the work that he's done and is doing in fellow believers. Thank you for other people in our lives, for the church, for various church members and those we fellowship with. Thankful that as believers, there's no fear in death. Hebrews 2. These are only a few of the many, many things that we can be thankful for. And there are so many others. And notice how we can be thankful for all of the things that I just listed, even during times of hardship and suffering. And as we start the new year, in order to be thankful throughout the year, I would encourage you to start a prayer list if you don't have one and to add thankfulness to it right after you preach the gospel to yourself and count the blessings that God has blessed you with. Thank him for all of these. Amen. Great reminder, you guys, especially beginning of the year when we're all making, we're making commitments right now, right? Be thankful. Know that you have so, so much more than what, you, what any of us deserves. Isn't that true? Um, yeah, thank you for that, Dave. And, and by the way, I am thankful to the Lord for what he's done over the last couple of years through this pandemic. Not only has he sustained us, but he's strengthened us as a body and knit our hearts together more than ever. And so thankful to him, thankful to you guys for your grace in one another's lives. So thank you for that reminder. Good stuff. All right, Ross wanted to focus on our Hope of the Ages series and to talk about what hope is, right, and how we can have more of it, right? Come on up, Russ. By the way, real quick, uh, before you... Okay, it's okay. Come up here. Come up, come up here. Uh, in, in case you're wondering why only four elders teaching today, um, you know, in the past we've done elder panels. We've done all six or seven of us teaching. And I say to the guys, you only got four or five minutes. We cannot do anything in four or five minutes. So we said we're going to do four this time so that you guys can teach as long as you want, right? Oh, yeah. Amen. Amen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Uh-oh>. No biology. <laughs> well, like so many others, Jeff forgets that you never give a professor permission to get up and speak on whatever. <laughs> have much to say about nothing. So, anyway, um, thank you, Dave and Kenny, for, for your little messages. Uh, again, hope. I'm so thankful that Jeff, during, the, during that, that segment of the Advent series, uh, clarified, I think, to many people. Um, probably everybody here knows this already, but it's good to be reminded of it periodically that there are basically two usages of the word hope. Okay, there's a more common usage, and uh, where, where, the, and like in the phrase, "I hope it rains tomorrow" or "I hope it snows tomorrow." In that kind of usage of the word hope, there's always an element of uncertainty, of doubt. But the biblical use of hope. So when we read the word hope in the Bible, it means something very different. Biblical use of the word, however, uses a synonym, synonym basically, for confidence or certainty. No, nothing uncertain about it. The Christian's hope is based in God's unchanging nature. In Hebrews 11:1, 1, we read that hope and faith are intimately tied together. Now, quote, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Without faith, one cannot have true biblical hope. And verse, vice versa, one cannot have faith without hope. 
where does this confidence come from? Throughout the Old Testament, as Jeff clearly showed, God made promises and covenants with certain people. The primary purpose or primary promise was that he would send a redeemer, a savior, a messiah, to rescue people from the eternal consequence of their sins. As the Old Testament progresses from Genesis to Malachi, the prophecies regarding the coming of Messiah became increasingly more focused, <clears throat> excuse me, specifically telling the place of his birth, the timing of the birth, and that he would be born of a virgin. Today, we can look back and see that over 300 prophecies regarding the arrival of the, of the Messiah have come true, just as predicted. Throughout the Bible, the Lord has made promises to, that have yet to be fulfilled in the future. Recognizing that the Lord has already precisely fulfilled over 300 prophecies made regarding the birth of Messiah, his first coming, it is not surprising that Christians, since the birth of Christ, can have a confident hope that God will do as he says he will do in the future. Namely, come again, establish his kingdom, exact judgment on evil, and redeem his people from the consequence of their sin. Importantly, we have the confidence because we place our faith and hope in God only. We are told in Hebrews 6, 17 through 19, that, quote, it is impossible for God to lie. Hope, like faith, is a gift of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13. His promises are designed to inspire confident hope. Our trust that God will bring about what he has promised is an anchor that keeps us stable and unmoved regardless of our circumstances. God gives us promises in his words to give us hope. Matthew 6, 31 through 32 promises God will provide for our basic needs of food and shelter. In Deuteronomy 31, 6, he gives us his promise that he will always be with us and not forsake us. In Psalm 119, 114 and uh, 27, 1, we are promised God will protect us by providing a place of refuge and shelter. Titus 1, 1 through 2, point to the promise of eternal life. Titus 2, 11, 13, we are promised that Christ will return. In 1 Peter 1 through 3 through 4, we are promised an inheritance that will not perish, spoil, or fade. 1 John 5, 14 through 15, promises that God hears and answers our prayers. In Colossians 1, 20, 1 27, we are reminded that Christ, is, Christ in us is the hope of glory. Hope brings joy. Romans 12, 12. It brings love, Romans 5, 5. It brings faith, Hebrews 11, 1. It brings us security, confidence, eternal value, and strength. And I won't go all through all the verses where that, those came from. But uh, One of Satan's schemes is to attack our hope by trying to create doubt. It works so well in the garden, if you'll remember. Doubt is one of his major our primary uh, tactics. As the days grow darker ahead and the world seems to be becoming unglued all around and crime and corruption, corruption are increasing, it becomes more important that we do not lose hope. Those without Christ are hopeless, which leads to despair, depression, isolation, loneliness, and possibly even to suicide. 
How can we combat his attacks? By staying grounded in the word of God, for it is only here that we find his promises and can have the confident hope that the Lord will accomplish his plans, fulfilling all the promises he has made exactly as predicted. So I leave you with this from Paul in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Maranatha. Thank you, Ross. That was only, uh, that was less than 10 minutes. Well done. Listen, that's such an important, such an important thing, guys, because we talked about that hope. We need to have it as believers. We have it. We have that hope, right? We just need to remember well because we are forgetful people. Remember the hope that you have. But let me also add, there's a lot of people out there that are struggling without hope right now. We talk about the evangelism table. We talk about building relationships with unbelievers who are being tossed all over the place right now by this world and by fear and so much going on out there. We need to be the people who are in their lives building those relationships and showing them that hope. And the opportunities have never been better for that than in the the culture we're living in right now. Now, Jeff is going to wrap us up by bringing a specific aspect of that hope, God's sovereignty. sovereignty. Amen. Well, since we didn't have church last week, Carol and I went over to Grace Baptist Church for their service. And at the end of the service, Dave Haig came up and he made a great comment. He mentioned that someone had asked him that week, what would make 2022 better than 2021? And Haig's answer was, almost anything. (laughs) And that sounds about right. I mean, with all the problems facing our country and the world, from poor leadership to sexual perversion to economic uncertainty and all the rest, it would be easy to become discouraged and just give up hope. And many have. But I pray none of you have. For one simple reason. Our God is sovereign. And whatever the world looks like, it is not slipped from God's hands. It is not on its own. Our God still reigns over his creation. And we can all take comfort that no matter however chaotic and confused everything around us looks, Our God is still on his throne, and he is still in control. And in the end, his will will be done, and this this world will achieve what he has ordained it to achieve. This world will end exactly where and when and how God has determined it will. And if there's one theme running through all we've looked at over the last month about the hope of the ages, it is the sovereignty of God that he has been working both overtly and behind the scenes through all of human history to bring about his will. In Ephesians 1.4, we are told that before human beings were ever created and the fall ever occurred, God had already decreed his plan of salvation, sovereignly choosing those who would be recipients of his grace and his mercy. And as Jeff mentioned when he talked about Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium, The moment Adam and Eve rebelled, God put into effect his sovereign plan to save humanity, promising that one day the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And from the moment God made that promise, the rest of the book of Genesis is about God's plan to bring salvation to humanity through the election and protection of that seed. All that happens in Genesis points to this.
The genealogy we see in Genesis 5 that starts with Adam through Seth down to Noah, and the genealogy that starts with Noah through Shem down to Abraham, all trace for us the line of this promised seed, the head crusher. This promise is given national significance when God makes his covenant with Abram, that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And with this came the promise of a land for Abraham and his descendants, the land of Canaan. And that promised seed was renewed to Isaac and to Jacob. And eventually the promised seed would come through the tribe of Judah, one of Jacob's sons. And the whole story of Joseph in the book of Genesis is God sovereignly saving his people from their own sin and folly by sending them into isolation in Egypt, where they could grow into a great nation unto themselves, unpolluted by the Canaanites and unassimilated by the Egyptians. And at the end of 400 years of bondage, he sovereignly rescued them through Moses and led them through the wilderness and finally brought them into their promised land under Joshua. It is a story of a sovereign God moving to fulfill his promises to his people so that he could bring salvation. And the next marker in God's sovereign plan is his promise to David from the tribe of Judah that the Messiah would come from his descendants one day. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David, promising one of his descendants to sit on his throne forever. And it is not an accident that Matthew's gospel begins by calling Jesus the son of David, the son of Abraham. No one who claimed to be the Messiah of Israel could have any other genealogy. And in his sovereign grace, God made sure his son fulfilled all the requirements completely. And one verse about Jesus that always has jumped out to me is Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Paul wrote this, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those under the law, that we might have adoption as sons. Paul tells us, that Jesus was born in the fullness of time, when the moment was exactly right in the plan and determination of God. There is nothing random about the timing of the birth of Jesus. It was all done in complete fulfillment of God's sovereign plan to redeem human beings. And God even used the godless decree of a Roman empire uh, emperor who was only greedy for more tax money to ensure that when Jesus was born, he was not only born at the right time, but in exactly the right place in Bethlehem, the city of David. And as we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, three times in the course of his ministry, Jesus took his disciples aside and warned them that he would be arrested in Jerusalem and beaten and crucified and buried and be raised again on the third day. And throughout all his life, and especially the last week of his life, we see Jesus sovereignly in control of all that is happening, even to the point of reminding Pilate that he had no power over Jesus unless it had been granted to him by God. And finally, it is impossible to read the accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus without being drawn to the description of the Messiah's death laid out in such exquisite detail in Isaiah chapter 53. That he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That it was our griefs and our sorrows that he bore, yet people esteemed him smitten and stricken by God. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And we all, like sheep, 
have gone astray and turned to our own paths of sin and rebellion. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was put to death with the wicked, and yet he was buried in a rich man's grave. In every detail, Isaiah gives us a vivid portrayal of what Jesus went through on the cross 700 years before Jesus was even born. Only a sovereign God could predict those details ahead of time and then ensure that they were fulfilled exactly. And what this means for us is that while we are living in strange and uncertain times where our government leaders are proving to be feckless and ineffective, where confusion reigns and chaos seems to be growing, where many people seem ready to give up their freedom and rights for a little security, we do not need to despair. Our God is on his throne. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And perhaps we should view the times we are living in as a warning not to set our hope on America or the economy or anything else. Our one true hope of the ages is the truth that our God is sovereign over his world and over all creation, including our lives, and that he can be trusted to be faithful to his own. And we finally have his great promise in Romans 8, 28. We read this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Because our God is sovereign, he causes all things to work together for good in our lives. All things. This does not mean that everything that happens to us is good, simply that our God has the power to bring good out of it in every situation. Nothing happens to us outside of his sovereign control. He will give us all the grace we need to endure and to come through whatever this world throws at us. And in the end, we will be more like Jesus Christ if we will trust him through it. God is not surprised by the pandemic. He's not caught off guard by the schemes of evil men. There are no oops moments with God. Our God is sovereign. He is in control. And the same God who promised the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head and then who fulfilled it completely through Jesus Christ will, his complete, will complete his work in us until the day Jesus Christ returns. Our sovereign God is our hope. His sovereignty over our lives is the soft pillow upon which we lay our heads at night. And let that thought give you comfort in these uncertain times. Amen. I, just, I think you just preached the whole Bible. Well done. Well done. That's fantastic. Well, brothers, thank you for sharing with us this morning and for those encouragements. Uh, look, these are all available on our, our YouTube page, right? Yeah, that's what it's called, the YouTube. Uh, they're all up there if you need to go back. <laughs> if you need to go back and be encouraged again, uh, these, these are the times when we need to continue to hear these messages because... It's, as I said, it's strange out there right now. Isn't it true? But God is sovereign. So thank you, brothers. I appreciate that. I'm going to pray in just a second, but just want to remind you guys, uh, uh, as we begin to uh, sing praises again, the, the ushers are going to come forward. We're going to take an offering here this morning. Great time beginning the year to start talking about developing habits, right? And one of those habits is, is giving as the Bible declares, not legalistically, not based on a number, 
but giving sacrificially and generously and joyfully. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, gathering us here this morning. Those of us who are able to make it today, Lord, to, to hear your word preached, to hear these, these good brothers, uh, remind us, God, of the things that you have taught us over the last three months through the pulpit ministry here at Oak Hill. Lord, we are uh, a grateful people this morning. Make us more thankful. Lord, we are grateful that we have this, this gift that you've given us we call communion, that we can spiritually feed upon you and that you can encourage us and give us gifts, Lord, and you can remind us of your goodness in our lives. We are so grateful for the hope that we have, the hope of the ages through all these dispensations of time, Lord, that you've been faithful to your promises. And as Jeff just shared, Lord, that you are sovereign over all of it so we can trust you. We can sleep well at night, even in the midst of chaos, because we know who we are, we know that we're found in you, and we know that you are faithful. So, Lord, thank you for this time this morning. Help us now to sing well, to sing from our hearts. Lord, may you find us uh, uh, not just found in you, Lord, but, but a repentant people, a people that, that longs to be together, a people that longs to sing your praises. Help us to do that well right now, Lord. We love you in the name of Jesus. Amen.